Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Tonight, we're going to talk to Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health about the status of the health here in Northeast Ohio, and especially Cuyahoga County. Kevin, as always, thank you for joining us. Sure. Good evening, Nick. Thank you for having me. We've been doing this for two years now, having you on to tell us how we're doing. (laughs) Uh, I I was talking to someone uh, about talking about COVID, and the uniform thought is we're all really totally sick and tired of COVID-19 and all of its progeny. The the thought of uh, COVID being with us, though, is that it's still with us to some degree, and that's why the Cuyahoga County Board of Health is involved, and that's why you're on tonight. But what what is the current status? We're in early July 2022. What's the current status of COVID? Is it still with us, and what precautions should we still be taking? Well, I can tell you, excuse me, Nick, I can tell you it's very much still with us. Uh, In looking at case activity, uh, if we recall in the recent past, here in February, March, and April, we were at a a real low in terms of um, two-week total case counts, we were as low as about 400 cases over a two-week period. Uh, Here in mid-May, we went back up to near 3,500 cases over a two-week period. And now here where we stand in June, we're at approximately 2,100 cases in the two-week period. So there still is a good deal of activity. Uh, Thankfully, what what we're seeing uh, from the CDC is that uh, our community activity level is considered low. Uh, in the county, our case rate is about 134 cases per 100,000 people. So that's on, certainly on the lower end. And the very encouraging thing is that uh, the number of staffed inpatient beds, which are being used by patients with confirmed COVID-19, is at about 3%. <clears throat> so, you know, we certainly have minimized that uh, that overload on the healthcare system. And as I say, our activity level is is decreasing. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're I'd say we're pleased to see, um, you know, the continued decline in activity, but we certainly don't feel like we're out of the woods yet. Are, are there still people who are contracting COVID either for the first, second, or third time or more that have to go into the ICU and have to go on ventilators? Are we still those kinds of cases? Um, I know, excuse me again, I, I know those cases exist, but I don't know to what frequency or what degree. Um, so, you know, not being in a clinical setting like that, I can't really speak to that. And that's not data that um, we track on a regular basis. With, with the idea of COVID being out there yet, uh, do we see any trends with regard to whether or not someone is unvaccinated, one vaccination, two vaccinations, one booster, two boosters, anything that gives us an idea of uh, how much efficacy there is with having, say, four shots up at this point? Well, I think what we can say is that we've certainly seen, you know, uh, a great deal of success with the vaccines just in terms of being able to, you know, turn this this uh, this rate of activity downward. Um, I, I think what we are somewhat, um, I don't want to say disappointed, but hopeful that the trend turns around is that uh, we see more people getting boosted because I think if we look at the, the estimates uh, on a state level, we're in the 60 60 percentile in terms of people who have completed both doses. In terms of those who are boosted, the number goes down to about the high 30s in terms of percentile. 
So there's quite a difference in the number of people who are, who have been boosted versus not. Uh, so in terms of your original question, though, far more people that we see uh, contracting COVID on any sort of serious level are typically unvaccinated. So, again, it's, it's still what we said from the very beginning, is that obviously vaccinations help. Uh, are are there any statistics or any uh, information we have concerning people who get vaccinated and have adverse effects to vaccinations? We hear all types of anecdotal stories about that. Uh, no, because I don't think that we see it on any sort of level that would merit, um, you know, intense surveillance. I think what we typically see is what many of us have experienced is we see the activity um, with the vaccine entering our systems, and then we see our immune system react to it. Uh, I know myself, the vaccines that I've gotten each time on the day after I've received the vaccine, I've been somewhat fatigued and tired, uh, had to sleep for a while, but once I woke up, I felt fine again. So, um, you know, and that's very typical um, from what we hear described by uh, the medical professionals that we interact with, and I think on a national basis. So in terms of People having adverse reactions, unless they have extenuating circumstances, Nick, you know, so, uh, being immunocompromised or having autoimmune uh, issues, you know, I don't know that there is any sort of widespread uh, evidence that we could present that would show that there's anything unusual taking place. Are people over 60 still at high risk, regardless of what level of uh, immunization they've had? Uh, I, well, I, I'd say, well... You know, I can't really speak to that not being a medical professional, but if we think of it theoretically, when we look at something like a flu shot, right, we recommend that people get them every year, and we certainly recommend that those, um, you know, 60, that, that age range, 55, 60, 65, when your immune system begins to, to wane a little bit, are certainly, you know, encouraged to get that. So in terms of, though, after someone's received four COVID shots, I don't, know that, you know, I, I don't have anything in front of me that says, you know, how long that immunity is projected to be. Uh, all we know is that, um, you know, when when it's recommended uh, that we adapt in terms of the variants uh, of, of COVID changing, right, much again, like the flu, we know the variants change every year. So we have to adapt the vaccine every year to try to capture the best defense we can. And we're at that point with COVID because, unfortunately, not enough people got vaccinated up front. So the virus continues to mutate, and as it does, we need to be able to address that effectively. And updated vaccines are probably the way, you know, in my non-clinical perspective, uh, the way to approach that. Are we going to see annual COVID shots coming up uh, along with the flu shots and maybe even part of the same shot? We've heard speculation to that effect, but nothing that would resemble anything definitive yet. Um, but, you know, theoretically, again, what, what this would be would be a combination shot which would protect you against flu, <clears throat> excuse me, and COVID for a specified period of time, probably being, you know, a year as, as the seasons change. Uh, so that that's what we've heard talked about. But again, nothing, you know, that we've heard that would make anything uh, imminent or definitive yet. You know, the mask mandates are gone, but we still see people wearing masks. Well, what's the best medical advice now on wearing masks when you're out in public, like, like at airports or at shopping centers and so forth? Well, we are certainly uh, still encouraging that. Our medical director, Dr. Prakash Ganesh, uh, has recommended that we, when we are in uh, tight spaces, such as you described, airports, um, waiting areas, uh, schools, churches, we would certainly recommend that people continue to wear masks. 
because the activity level is still such that, you know, there is, there is the risk out there. Uh, unfortunately, uh, to your point, what we see typically, it, just anecdotally in my experience, is when I go out, I'm one of a handful of people wearing a mask. And when I go to whatever store, you know, grocery store, post office, whatever it may be, um, you know, a lot of people are, you know, feeling, you know, confident in the fact that they're going to be protected. And we do want to remind people, um, you know, that vaccines are the best method of prevention that we have, but they're not ironclad guarantees. So when you hear about people getting sick, even though they've been vaccinated, what the vaccine does is minimizes the severity of the symptoms, the duration of their illness, and enables them to recover much quicker. Some people don't get it at all. It's, it's the individual reaction with the vaccine. But we still would encourage people, certainly if you haven't been vaccinated yet or boosted, uh, to go and do that when you can. Yeah, we've noticed uh, some people that we know have been boosted and, of course, vaccinated and boosted. And they came up positive with covid but uh, a number of people we've run into haven't had any symptoms at all. Is, is that very uncommon? Mm-hmm. And, and we have about a minute. Uh, you know, much like uh, you and I have discussed in the past, norovirus is, is an illness, you know, where you've got the upper and lower GI distress, and not everyone who gets it becomes symptomatic. And we, we learned that with COVID, uh, you know, early on in the pandemic, that there were people who were carriers, uh, who were able to transmit the illness to other people but did not suffer themselves. So, yes, that that is certainly still viable. I don't know to what degree. Uh, you know, I'd have to take a look at that and see what medical uh, data indicates now. But we certainly know that that, that is, uh, is very viable out there. Well, uh, that's good to hear. But I know by the same token is that it's, uh, COVID is still pretty unpredictable that uh, you're, you're taking somewhat of a gamble if you get it because you don't know how your body's going to react to it with or without vaccination. And uh, so, so with that, we still want to be cautious for appropriate, especially for over 60 years old, which is a, an interesting thing. We're talking to Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. We're getting an update in July 2022 on what's going on with COVID. It's still there, and we're still talking about it. We'll be back with Kevin Brennan talking more about what's going on at the Board of Health and what uh, we should be thinking about and what we should be doing. Don't go away. We'll be right back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, tonight with Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health talking about COVID still. Kevin, thank you so, so much for joining us. You're welcome, Nick. Thank you for having me. You know, in the uh, last segments, we're talking about COVID and as usual. There's a thing called long COVID. What is that and how is that affecting people, especially our children? Well, long COVID is very problematic in that it, the typical scenario is that someone uh, goes through their their typical bout with COVID, and when they recover, they still have symptoms that linger. And those can be anything from fatigue, um, body aches, headaches, what people call brain fog, inability to focus, uh, a prolonged uh, loss of the senses of either taste or smell. So there are no, a number of things that, uh, that that are difficult with that as people try to return to their normal life post-COVID. Uh, so are, these, are, these chronic, about, are these chronic conditions? 
well, you know, it remains to be seen. I, I was just going to say that, you know, we're still so early in the in the development of the, the illness and the surveillance that goes along with it that we don't know yet how long these symptoms may last. So to your point about um, children, you know, we're very thankful that the vaccine has now been approved for six-month-old to five-year-old children uh, because, you know, we worry about people contracting the illness at any age, but particularly as children. And then if we were to compound that with long COVID, this could be effectively, you know, that particular scenario would be effectively introducing chronic illness into the lives of children. And it's something that we really hope we can prevent. So this is why, you know, we've been encouraging people so strongly to, uh, you know, make sure you protect yourself. But now that this vaccine is available for children, please take advantage of that at the time that you think you're ready. You know, uh, children during their first year of life get vaccinated for all kinds of things. How safe is the COVID vaccine for children? Well, from what we understand from the CDC, from the Ohio Department of Health, and from our own medical uh, advisors, is that the vaccine is just another uh, one to be added to the list uh, that is recommended for children, uh, along with the other slate of things that we know in the first year and the second year and beyond that children uh, are recommended to take. Uh, so, you know, and we certainly would not, again, we don't want to introduce anything that, that resembles chronic illness in the form of long COVID, but then anything that's, you know, suddenly symptomatic like that, too, in terms of you know, bringing illness upon uh, children when their immune systems are not really fortified to fight it on their own. <clears throat> so hence, we want to make sure that, you know, parents are uh, are taking advantage of that vaccination option as soon as they can. So as far as the vaccine itself, any side effects for children? Uh, not, well, I shouldn't say, I, I can't say not any. Uh, but what I can say is from an adult perspective, uh, you know, we hear a lot of people talk about, uh, you know, the fact that they don't want to get it because they don't want to experience the side effects or they don't know, you know, what the potential long-term effects could be. Um, and, and, you know, what we've seen typically is the fatigue or, the, you know, the, the sudden sort of malaise, not sudden, but gradual malaise that goes along with, uh, with the day or two following a, a, a vaccination or a booster. Uh, I know when I've had mine each time on the second day, uh, I've gotten a little bit of fatigue and, and had to get some sleep, but then woke up and felt, you know, felt fine. So, and from what I understand, that's just a natural reaction that indicates that your immune system is working properly. Uh, so, and that's not to say that if you don't have side effects, your immune system's not working properly. But uh, again, it's one of these individual experiences, much like the ability to contract COVID. Some people we've gone, you know, two and a half going on three years. And some people have never gotten it, and some people have had it multiple times. So the indiscriminate nature of it is is one of those things that's just very confounding for us to this day. Uh, maybe sometime in years uh, to come, we'll find out what COVID is truly all, all about. Uh, and I know the Board of Health has always been counting the numbers of cases and helping us determine whether it's expanding or decreasing as far as the frequency of COVID. Uh, but with home testing going on, uh, aren't there some people or a lot of people who are getting their home test, uh, find out they have mild or no symptoms, and they simply don't report it? Uh, how do we handle the home testing situation and trying to judge uh, how much COVID is out there? Well, what we've heard, and I don't recall if it was from the CDC or the National Institutes of Health, um, but the estimate was that any activity level in a community could be as much as 20 to 30 percent higher than what's reported. So, um, again, you know, what we're thankful for now is that the severity of COVID 
uh, it does not seem to be as consistent as it was certainly pre-vaccine, but then, you know, as, as recently as uh, this past winter when we had a, you know, a lot of uh, difficult activity. But um, now that, you know, we're getting back on track, uh, it, it seems like, you know, the situation's improving. So, you know, we're looking forward to, to main, kind of staying on track here and seeing what we can do and in and, and recommending that uh, certainly if you haven't gotten boosted uh, to do so, because we know that statewide the numbers are, are very low compared to the number of people who've gotten two doses, which is in the 60 percentile. Uh, again, that, that boosted population is still in the 30 percentile. So we've got a good ways to go still. Well, as we're finally hearing uh, the stories about COVID dropping <clears throat> off the news, monkeypox is popping up. Uh, how, how real of a threat is that? And how much of that do we have here in, in the northern Ohio area? Well, again, we've got um, we've got one reported case, uh, which was confirmed just this week. Uh, what we do know about monkeypox is that it is similar uh, in nature. The virus is from the from the smallpox family, but it is not uh, in the same category as chickenpox. So I don't know what the differentiation is, but uh, but they are different. But we know with monkeypox, um, this won't become a pandemic situation where we have worldwide uh, outbreaks of illness uh, and fatalities. Uh, what we do know is, if anything, it will be endemic, meaning that it will be could be spread within a particular area or region. Uh, but we certainly do have um, you know medications and treatments that uh, that can you know get people uh, get people better. So, uh, but it spreads in a number of different ways. Um, typically. When you have monkeypox, um, you could experience things like chills, body aches, headache, fever, but it typically will manifest itself on your skin in the form of a rash, uh, a lesion, a boil. Um, so you'll see it. And then, you know, if, if you were to come in direct contact with somebody who had that, were at that stage in the condition, uh, you could certainly get it from them. Uh, and then respiratory secretions uh, or bodily fluids, uh, that, can, uh, that can also spread it or possibly touching things that someone had uh, touched when they were infectious with the rash, such as clothing or linens. The, uh, the idea of monkeypox and the spreading, you mentioned it won't be a pandemic. How can we be so sure? What, what makes something a pandemic and uh, something like monkeypox not being a pandemic? Well, with monkeypox, there are treatments available. Um, there are, there are, <clears throat> excuse me, there are medicines that are similar to the ones used for smallpox, uh, there are also, depending on uh, someone's condition or their immunocompromised state, there are also uh, antivirals that can be used. With COVID, you know, we went so long, Nick, as you know, without any type of vaccine. So for that entire first year, uh, we were really at the mercy of the spread of the illness. And that's really <clears throat> what, what causes it to spread like wildfire and really creates that more pandemic situation. With this, again, we have remedy, so we can certainly contain anything before it would uh, before it would get out of control. Well, let's hope that it doesn't become something as uh, as infamous as COVID nineteen has been for us. Uh, well, since uh, we've gone through the whole push with COVID nineteen and the whole idea of the pandemic, uh, there are some changes at the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. I understand. What what are those changes? Yes, our uh, our former health commissioner, Terry Allen, retired after 33 years with the agency and 18 of those as the health commissioner. So that's a long time, uh, but we had a very consistent run, and we, we certainly accomplished a lot of great things during that time. Our new health commissioner, Dr. Rod Harris, 
is a native Clevelander uh, who has worked all over the country in different uh, arenas of public health. He's got a doctorate in public health, so he's very well educated and well, very well versed and prepared uh, for the environment that we face now in public health. And we're really looking forward to uh, to getting uh, on track with uh, possibly some new programs and some new ways to interact with uh, with the community. Uh, certainly, COVID has been a challenge, and we continue to carry that uh, as we go forward. But you know, little by little, we are able to get more back into uh, our normal swing of paying attention to our programs, and we look forward to Dr. Harris leading us uh, here as we go forward. Well, I remember you mentioned how long that uh, that your prior uh, director has been in, uh, Terry Allen, without having to be on TV every day. When uh, 2020 started and we had all this COVID information, he was on TV constantly. Hopefully, Dr. Harris will enjoy the same anonymity that Terry had before COVID, and we don't have another one. <laughs> Yes, that would be that would be a comfortable situation for us all. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. That would be success. Well, very much. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us tonight, giving us another update on what's going on with COVID here in Cuyahoga County. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity, Nick. My pleasure. Thank you. And we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. So don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, the Advocate. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the next two segments, we're going to be talking to a professor from Kent State University, a pre- previous guest on, on the show, talking about Ukraine and what's going on with the Russian invasion and how this is uh, looking down the road. Um, Eli, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me again. This is Dr. Eli Call from Kent State University, a professor of political science. Who, uh, His background is interesting. He spent about three years studying uh, in and out of uh, Ukraine what's going on with the transition of the Ukrainian government following the fall of the Soviet uh, rule. And uh, with that, you have a wealth of knowledge. So I appreciate, uh, Eli, you joining us to talk about what's going on in, in Ukraine now. Of course. And, the, uh, you know, the first, Wait, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to ask. A lot of uh, Americans have trouble not saying the Ukraine. It's Ukraine. Uh, can you shed any light on that? Uh, that trivial fact. Uh, yeah. So it's there, there's a lot of reasons why people can take that the wrong way. Um, the Ukraine kind of indicates uh, describing it as a, a territory as part of something. So the, the area that's currently and that has been under conflict in Ukraine for the past eight years is called the Donbass um, because it's, it's re- short for referring to the Donbass region of Ukraine. Um, and so by referring to it as the Ukraine, it's essentially the Ukraine. That, that terminology kind of indicates that it's, Ukraine territory of some other entities, um, the Ukrainian area of the Soviet Union, the Ukraine territory of the Russian Empire, uh, going back a couple hundred years, um, and so and so the 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 prefix um, kind of indicates that it's not it's almost independent. It is, it's kind of one of the ways that at least I 
envision it and 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 see it um because ukraine is a country and it is a territory an independent country and we don't say um can't the canada we say canada um the united states is a little bit different because of the 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 terminology and what that name indicates and so with ukraine it's a little bit uh they, people can be touchy a little bit about uh, improper use and, and application of the the. Um, most Ukrainians that I know don't take offense if it's an American thing that because they mm-hmm. understand that Americans aren't necessarily aware that what they're saying is kind of indicative of of implying that Ukraine is not its own sovereign independent state. It's it's part of a larger Russian uh, holding. Um, but it, it, the way I put it is, you know, I think about territorial areas in, in the United States, like the Ohio River Valley. Um, and so that's that's the kind of use that applying the Ukraine kind of case. I see. Well, I, I appreciate the explanation because I, I never was really quite sure why would it cause some type of a negative reaction to say the Ukraine and people correct you all the time to say it's Ukraine, not like mm-hmm. the Canada, it's Canada and it's Ukraine. But but that sort of brings up the question about the history of that region as a region and uh, the, the fact that it's been associated with Russia for centuries. Uh, briefly, what kind of historical significance is there and is the historical significance of the relationship between Ukraine and Russia play any part in why Putin is doing this to Ukraine right now? Um, So there are thoughts that Putin has this revisionist kind of rewriting of history in mind when it comes to Ukraine, but also other areas of the former Soviet Union, like Belarus and uh, in particular, as well as some of the Caucasus region, uh, Georgia and Azerbaijan and Armenia. And the history is actually kind of predates what we know as modern Russia um, in Ukraine. Uh, The first historical documentations of Ukraine come from Herodotus all the way back then. Um, And, and you know, the territories in Ukraine along the Black Sea are, were, you know, part of uh, the the Eastern Roman Empire. um, And and they've, been part of numerous uh, uh, historical civilizations, but the the most prominent one for today's purposes is the Kievan Rus, um, which was the foundations of modern Russian civilization, started in Kiev, Ukraine. Um, Actually, it started in a Russian city known as uh, Novgorod, but then emigrated to the the fortified city of Kiev. Back in the, the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages, we're talking 880, um, 800 CE, um, and this period of time is when the the, the settlers, the the Varangian settlers of of Viking descent, so from Norway and Sweden and, and Finland even, uh, who were trading with Constantinople in Tur- what is modern day Turkey and is known as Istanbul today. Uh, would travel down the rivers through Eastern Europe to, to you know, peddle their wares and, and, and 
engage in trade with the the Ottomans in uh, in, in the Turkish Empire, and the they would stop along the way and uh, kind of intermingle with the Slavic people who and, and who were kind of this uh, I guess referred to commonly as pagan tribes living in the the Eastern European uh, hinterlands and. Eventually, they started. Some of these Varangian traders started settling down and forming their own kind of permanent status along these rivers, and that's where the the fortified city of Kiev kind of emerges. Uh, and then uh, Christianity is 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 brought to uh, the Kievan Rus Empire, um, and the kind of foundations of what became modern Russia started in Kiev. So they started so, shared civilization. So, mm-hmm. so, so like at, at this point in time or at this point in history, Ukrainian and Russian history, you know, historical civilizations are the same. But then after the Mongol invasion uh, kind of topples Kiev and kind of subjects most of Eastern Europe to Mongol rule, um, the, 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 that's where we start seeing some of this deviation in terms of historical national identity, um, between Belarusian and Ukrainian and, and Georgian and Crimean, Tatar, uh, civilizations kind of, that's where we start seeing this split in terms of, uh, cultural and evolutionary, um, heritage. And so that's when... It, one of the things that Putin has tried to do is to kind of reinvigorate this history and claim that Ukraine has always been part of Russia and, and, and that Ukraine was never independent. And to some extent, uh, he, he's pointing to the fact that there haven't been any real periods of independent rule in Ukraine other than the Hetmanite uh, uh, kind of I guess it was like a city-state kind of period, but Ukraine was independent at, during that time. But then Lithuanian and... When, when, was, when was that, by the way? How long ago? I want to say in the 1500s. Uh, I have to check my notes on that one. I'm sorry. Well, that's but, okay. But, that's remote. Uh, that's remote enough to make it ancient history. Yeah. It's, it, I, think, I mean, so uh, it, it for, occurred for after purposes. the Mongols were pushed back. Yeah. Um, the most recent periods of, of independence in Ukrainian civilization, though, were, you know, Ukraine was independent for about two months uh, after the October Revolution uh, pushed out the Tsar in uh, Russia and kind of the Bolsheviks started taking control over what became the Soviet Union. For about two months, the Ukrainians sought an independent rule, uh, and then the Bolsheviks came in and kind of brought them under the Bolshevik control as an kind of an autonomous republic of the Soviet Union, what would become the Soviet Union. And so it's, it's, it's kind of oh, that, interesting history in that regard, um, and it kind of plays a it, big it role is. in what I think we're, we're going to have to take a short break, and we'll be back with, uh, with Dr. Eli Kahl. Uh, he's a professor at Kent State University in political science and specializing in 
Ukrainian government, Ukrainian history. We're trying to still figure out what's going on between Russia and Ukraine at this point. We'll take a short break. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. We're talking about what's going on in Ukraine with uh, Dr. Eli Call from Kent State University, a political science expert on Ukrainian history, Ukrainian government. And again, uh, Dr. Call, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's a mystery as to why this is happening in Ukraine, where the Russians are invading, causing not only terrible damage and disruption and death in Ukraine, but also affecting the global economy, as we're seeing, with regard to oil production and uh, other other elements of selling grain from Ukraine out to the rest of the world. It's having such a, an impact. We were talking in the last segment about the uh, Russian history and how it has been involving Ukraine. And um, you think that some of the Russian history is actually playing a part in what's going on with the Russian invasion? Or is it strictly an economic way of uh, claiming resources and improving the Russian economy? Well, what, again, I, I still keep asking the question, what's going on here? Why is this happening? So I, I think one of the things that people should start to kind of hone in on is why Putin behaves the way he does and how he has been behaving all along since he took power in 2000. Um, and, and there's a lot of evidence of, of him acquiring or seeking to acquire this kind of uh, overlordship over the other former Soviet republics, which typically because of the legacy of the Soviet Union, end up starting off as dictatorships. Um, a lot of these former Soviet republics, I mean, I'm talking about Central Asia, the Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, mm -hmm. um, and then the, the Caucasian republics, the Georgia, uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and then Ukraine and Belarus in particular. So the, the Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, the Baltics, moved to Europe rather quickly during after the fall of the Soviet Union, and then they kind of consolidated this democratic, democratic transition early, early on in the 1990s, whereas all the other former Soviet republics, Russia included, had these kind of struggles with, with establishing a, democratic, a new democratic regime following the end of the Soviet Union. And a lot of these former republics started off with the leaders being former Communist Party leaders, the, the Communist Party bosses who were in control at the time of the end of the Soviet Union. And so, and, and because of that, a lot of them ended up consolidating power and control over the, these new republics. And Ukraine was one of the ones that didn't have that happen. Even though the, the, the former leader, uh, a gentleman who just passed away recently named Kravchuk, um, Leonid Kravchuk was the Communist Party boss in Ukraine, and he did become the first Ukrainian president, he uh, only stayed in power until 1994, at which point a gentleman named Kuchma took over. 
And Kuchma had this kind of unique experience where he would hit uh, Yeltsin's Russia and the United States and Europe uh, kind of against each other in terms of implementing reforms. He would kind of play uh, both both sides of the deck. Um, and, and in doing that, he kind of established this kind of neutrality status for Ukraine uh, regarding the East-West, uh, the, the Russian versus Western Europe kind of trajectory of democratic development in Ukraine. And then one of the things that I believe is happening with regards to the current conflict is, is Putin has tried to consolidate kind of this suzerain status over the former Soviet republics, particularly those with dictatorial rule. And it's become difficult in Ukraine because Ukraine doesn't have a dictator. Ukraine has had a, a, a series of democratic revolutions um, to prevent such autocratic rule from emerging in Ukraine. And it's clear and evident that the people of Ukraine won't stand for some sort of autocrat taking over control and the perception of uh, the leader of Ukraine as a puppet for the Russian Federation or any other foreign power for that matter is, is viewed as, as a very negative thing and it would likely not stand. And so I think that this is something that Putin might have missed in terms of his understanding of the people of Ukraine and their aspirations for democracy. But it is something that he has sought to pursue because he wants control and he views his ability to control a, a dictator via uh, coercion or intimidation or um, uh, other means of kind of this uh, elite level negotiation between uh, uh, the great power of Russia and the slightly weaker power of Kazakhstan, for example, as, as something that he can take advantage of. And the fact that he can't do that in Ukraine has been really problematic for him and, and his vision of what Russia's status is in the former Soviet Union. And so I think that one well, of the... Well, it does look like a big miscalculation on the part of Putin. Absolutely. And it's be, and, and a large part of that is because he's been isolating himself. Um, particularly, I think COVID played a huge role in why this invasion is happening now is because of the economic impact that COVID has had on the produ economic production in Russia has pr pushed um, some of the uh, inner circle elites in Russia to kind of think about, well, maybe we could do this better, or maybe we, we could ha have handled this crisis better than Putin has handled it. And I think in order to kind of consolidate uh, the, the necessity for his ability to rule, Putin has had to reach and, and make these bold claims of denazification mm -hmm. in, in, in Ukraine, um, a country with a, a Jewish president. Um, it it's, seems ironic. It, yeah. I mean, well, and that's the key is that it's, it's clear and evident that his real goal is to reign in Ukraine as a puppet government, as a puppet state, just like he's done with Belarus um, following the, the anti- uh, autocrat protests in 2020, where uh, the the dictator of Belarus was, was surprisingly reelected in what is largely viewed as a fraudulent election, uh, thousands of Belarusians protested and, and advocated for, you know, recognition of the unique Belarusian national identity. And there's, you know, while Russian forces are staging themselves in Belarus and have been throughout this invasion since February. 
the, the majority of Belarusians do not support Putin reaching his hand into Belarus and kind of governing Belarus as a fiefdom of Russia. Um, and, and essentially, that's what I see Putin's kind of vision of the world is, is, is kind of this old era feudalist style governance where he is the king and the, the leaders of Belarus and Ukraine and Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan are all kind of his subordinate lords governing over these autonomous territories. Um, but his have, have those other have those other countries uh, accepted that role, like uh, Kazakhstan and of, Belarus? Yeah, the the leadership of Belarus and Kazakhstan have accepted that role. Um, uh, both those two countries I name because we have specific, you know, evidence of Russian involvement in kind of Russian manipulation of the, the foreign power uh, foreign policy process in these two countries. Um, Kazakhstan recently, for those of you who might not remember, right before the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February, in January, there were mass protests in Kazakhstan uh, over oil price hikes and and, and energy uh, price hikes in this very energy-rich country, um, largely to help supply Kazakhstan's main export to Russia. Um, And and so the, the... popular protests that occurred in Kazakhstan demanded a regime change and Kazakhstan reached out to Russia and the other com- uh, uh, cooperative of the uh, CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization that Russia has started kind of as a counter to NATO. Um, there's only six members right now. Um, and, and Kazakhstan reached out to them, and 2,500 Russian paratroopers arrived in the, and, and kind of put down the protest with lethal ammunition. And hundreds of people were wounded, and many of them died. Um, Don't hear much, was, of, much of that. Yeah, and, and, and that's well, the thing. is it was, it was big news when it was going on, but then it disappeared yeah. as soon as the war in Ukraine broke up. And, and so and this well, is the, the way that Putin prefers to lead these kind of and, and have his influence over these uh, satellite countries of his, in his mind. Well, let's hold let's hold on to that thought for now until we have you on again to follow up on Ukraine. So, uh, Dr. Eli Call, thank you so much for joining us tonight and giving us an update on what's going on with Ukraine. Well, not a problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So, between now and then, have a great, healthy, and safe week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to do until morning